Hello listeners, it's Craig. Before we begin this episode, I offer you an apology. While none of us are qualified audio engineers, we do like to think that our episodes usually meet some sort of minimal standard of production for your listening pleasure. By that, I mean we don't do silly things like attempt to record using a mobile phone in a pub. I must take full responsibility for this. Scott is in Mexico right now, which necessitated his contributions being recorded solo. But conversely, good old Drew was visiting myself and my family and physically present for the recording. Carried away by the excitement, we carried out some very successful lab condition testing at the house and set off for the pub. What we learned is that a pub is not a lab, at least not in the traditional sense. There's an argument to be made there around the science of beer and its natural habitat, but I digress. What I'm saying is that large portions of this episode are subject to extraneous, intrusive background noise, and while I did my best to EQ things for maximal listening comfort, it's still total pants. Uh, Rest assured, we will resume something more like normal service in our next episode, and once Scott gets back from Mexico, he will no doubt practice some of the cartel del Golfo torture tactics I'm assuming he'll pick up on me. With that said, I'll sod off and leave you to make what sense you can of this audio shambles. And please, please, please don't unsubscribe. Welcome to another FudsOnFilm.com podcast. I am Craig Eastman, and with me at the Royal Oak Pub in Kerouis, North Wales, is Drew Tavendale. Greetings! Don't ask why we're coming to you from a pub in North Wales, it's a long story. Uh, Scott Morris isn't with us in person tonight, very much here in spirit though. He's currently baking himself in the desert heat of Monterey, Monterey, Mexico. Uh, But he'll be chipping in at some point in the recording via the magic of audio editing. Uh, so all of a sudden I feel quite awkward talking over the silence of the music Uh, so first of all Drew we are going to talk a little bit today about Logan are we not? Yes, Logan or how the hell is that a 15? Mm. It should really be subtitled Tell us a bit about Logan Ah, Logan then is the last outing by Hugh Jackman as Logan, better known to most people as the Wolverine. He's been in what's that? Eight films now? That be right? Something approaching that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Origins Wolverine. The Wolverine. The Wolverine. First three uh, X-Men films. Didn't he have a cameo in Days of Future Past he's or something? He's a big role in Days of Future Past. Ah, right, okay. Star Days of Future Past. Right. What's the one he's got a cameo in? Because I haven't seen a great many of the X-Men movies. First Class? Might be First Class. His cameo is where he sees Magneto and Dean McKellen. Magneto and Dean McKellen. Magneto and Professor X being in the airport. That could be First Class. But so, this is his, I think... Have they all blended into one for you? <laughs> they do a little. Um, yeah. Not so much as the, the other Marvel stuff, to be honest, though. They like, keep separate the x a bit more. Tell me, um, Seventh or Eighth Outing is um, Wolverine since X-Men in 2000. Mm-hmm. So he's been a pretty good crew from this um, one thing, although, to be fair to Jack, 
Then I've been typecasting. He's so famous, so famous, but he's done a lot of stuff in between, doing very varied stuff. So uh, yeah, precisely. Um, he's been Wolverine and he's been Jean Valjean uh, recently, which is fairly polar as far as these things are concerned. So yeah, he's certainly not allowed himself to be typecast. He has, up until this point though very much allowed the character to be informed by the wishes of the studio right um, I suppose if you're a fan of the X-Men comic books as little as I know about these things the Wolverine that we see on screen is probably safe to say a slightly hamstrung version of the uh, of the comic book character I don't know if you're any more au fait with the comics than I am not really not at all, no. No. <laughs> um, I mean I suppose Wolverine from my just of the films mm. seems to be the only character that's actually had any real character development mm. um, and it's not been that much but but the thing with Logan seems to be that that's all changing uh, yes yes so the deal here is uh, that well Wolverine's getting old after being the pet of the pet the pet the pet the pet the pet the pet of weakness I feel like I might be the pit of fakeness, but as a, as a physical specimen, I think it's probably more fair to say that Hugh Jackman is the peak of fitness. Yes, yes. Uh, and I have to even then, I still have to think about it. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, the character Wolverine has been the peak of fitness for a century and a half, something like that. Uh, survived nuclear explosions. And Ad- ex- quite admirably, I might add. Yes, and uh, experimentation on his body. That sort of thing, but here he is old and well, he's dying really. Uh, we see he's grey hair, which you'd expect, and while he still heals, it takes much more effort, and he's walking with a limp. So this is old man Logan, um, and while it's never quite clear um, why it's happening, um, I don't think it's spoiled. Logan thinks probably his body's been poisoned by the adamantium that was forced into him. Um, the same thing that made them the unstoppable kill machine is killing the unstoppable killing machine. Oh, um, how ironic. Yes. Uh, this is set in the near future, 2029, I believe. Um, which obviously makes immediately makes me think I've got the year wrong because I can only associate that year with Terminator, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it's 2029. It's 2029. And he is now... Um, Doing odd jobs as well, basically, as a more driver, man. basically, isn't it? Yeah. So loop, a loop, a looper, a looper. Well, I, I can't speak to me enough. I've had <laughs> two sips of beer. <laughs> you're a quarter of the way into a pint of Guinness, and you're struggling already. Yes. Um, yes, he's uh, he's working as a limo driver, uh, doing fairly small fares uh, near the Mexican border, and kind of seems like he's a junkie too right border um, runs for hen parties and stuff yeah so he's without doubt an alcoholic although he was pretty much a hard drinker for all the time we've known him but it's looking like he's got uh, a, a junk habit going on because he's buying illegal drugs from hospitals turns out though not so simple Mm. He is, in fact, looking after um, a nonagenarian Professor Xavier. Yes, uh, Professor X, the man of the world's most um, dangerous mind, is one of the few mutants left alive. Seem to be dying out um, for some unknown reason. There's no new mutant person um, in twenty years or something. But they say something like that. But Professor. X now has some sort of degenerative brain condition which makes his powerful brain a liability. Mm. And 
while using the primitive process. And the thing is, Wolverine has always been a better person than he A thought himself capable of, and B probably wants to be. And of all the people left the world to look after their sex, turns out it's Logan. And you would never have thought of it. No. Um, and he's aided this by another remaining mutant called Caliban. Weirdly cast as Stephen Merchant. Yeah. Very odd. Who almost, almost escaped me initially that it was Stephen Merchant until I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, really? Not quite as gangly looking as Stephen Merchant normally comes off. No. So, um, and not quite Stephen Merchant as Stephen Merchant normally comes off. No. So maybe it wasn't the worst casting ever. Uh, it's, and he's basically just trying to keep Professor X safe. Head and look after him, and um, then he's just slowly awaiting death. He's not in a good place. Uh, until suddenly, I guess he's well, he gets caught in looking after a child. Ten year old girl, to be precise. Um, who. It's not a spoiler to say the relationship, is it? Because kind of the point of the film, or. Don't say any more than that. Yeah. Okay, um, he's looking after this little mutant girl who is the subject of experiments by a rather nasty organisation with ties to the military um, that worked on Wolverine at Alkali Lake. Yeah. Um, headed up by the, the Weapons X program. Yeah, program it's yeah. um, a continuation of that by other means. And then he uh, finds himself in charge of this young girl and has to flee across several thousand miles to the United States and keep her safe from pretty much an army of bad guys out together. And from that point on, it's really a, a journey of... It's not so much self-discovery as self-acceptance, I guess, of Wolverine's mortality, um, of his relationship with friends, and about... It's like, coming to terms of, like, he's done bad things, but is he a bad person? Nature versus nurture, even some of that, those kind of elements are in there. It's basically Little Miss Sunshine if the family all had knives for hands and they were being chased by men with guns. It's uncannily like Little Miss yes, Sunshine, right? It almost yeah. is. In fact, now that I think about it, it's a fairly blatant rip off, Drew. Yeah, uh, Patrick Stewart is clearly Alan Arkin. Clearly. 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 Um, yeah, so basically it's a father-daughter road movie almost at that point, isn't it? Um, and well, that's just the way the relationship then. Mm, <laughs> note to self, edit. Um, yeah, it's all it's uh, it's almost a family road movie then. Although um, to describe it simply as that would be doing it a great disservice because it's also fairly fairly action-packed, I'd say, Drew. And that would be an understatement, I would that, say. That action is frequent and it is frenzied and it is absolutely brutal. Because yes. when I was referring to the character being hamstrung in previous movies, what appears to be the case here is that James Mangold, the director with whom Jackman has worked as Wolverine on more than one occasion before, right? The Wolverine was, the Wolverine. was um, James Mangold. He didn't direct X Men Origins as well, did he? Wolverine. That's what I'm not sure. I'm going to check that. Um, get, that get that phone out, although I'd be amazed if you've got any signal up here. In the <laughs> I don't know Yes, um, in this movie the, it seems to be the case that um, certainly following the success of Deadpool 
uh, Sony Pictures have suddenly cottoned on to the fact that actually there might be a bit more of a market than they initially thought for slightly higher rated um, comic book movies. Um, obviously Deadpool made a shit ton of money despite having its adult rating. Um, yes. These so these movies have always you know have been designed to cater for a, a broader audience from financial perspective. The one side to occasionally mention to do these face to face because I forget that we're doing we're still recording so I'm nodding in yes. agreement. Which is really, really good for radio. It is. Um, so yes, the, on this occasion it would appear that the studio have the will and one would assume that as this is his from what we gather his final outing as Wolverine, probably Jackman and Mango have dedicated to giving the character, well, A, the centre of the deserves, but also in the fashion that really we probably should have been accustomed to from the beginning, as pertains to Wolverine. This is a brutal, brutal film. <laughs> I don't think either of us, despite what I'd heard previously, I know I wasn't, and I expect you were, preparing yourself for quite how brutal and full on this is. No, it is, it is vicious, mm-hmm. it is bloody. It's it frenzied. It pulls no punches. It is sustained. Yes. It is absolutely not a 15, <laughs> despite that being the rating it was given. This is crazy. This is like the biggest puzzle for me. Um, we had this discussion right about... like first of, first of all, right off the bat, before we get into any deeper conversation about this stuff, let me just say, I absolutely love this. Right, I'm not a great fan. Um, the only X-Men movies that I saw in the cinema were the first two, uh-huh. X-Men and, and X2, and I really enjoyed those. Um, previous outings, I have only seen X-Men 3, which I think everyone could probably agree is best forgotten. And one of the others, and I think it says something in and of itself that I can't remember which of them. Oh, sorry, I saw, I've seen X-Men Origins Wolverine, and I've seen the Wolverine, but then of the other main story arc X-Men movies, I've only seen, certainly not the most recent one, Apocalypse, I think it might have been Days Apocalypse, of Apocalypse, that's what I was forgetting, yeah, right, okay. right, yeah, obviously he's in Apocalypse. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of and comic book adaptations in general. No, he's not in Apocalypse, I don't think. Is he not? not cameo in Apocalypse. Right, okay. I think. Is he so a cameo in First Class because he's Professor X recruiting mutants and he basically says not interested but they come back to 20 years later. Right. Uh, because it's in the 70s or 60s. But, um, is he in Apocalypse? That film basically like one in one year and out the other. It definitely was not one of the most right. rewarding ones. Okay. <laughs> Well, yes. I'm not, I'm not what amazing knowledge we are um, presenting to you, dear listener. This is what people come to a podcast for, Drew. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of comic book adaptations in general. Um, I think I've derived some pleasure from Guardians of the Galaxy, which was better than I expected, but by and large, um, Deadpool uh, gave me a laugh, but it's not a film I've got any desire to really go back and watch again. So... I wasn't necessarily holding out much hope going into Logan, but uh-huh. something something about it piqued my interest, and I've heard it variously referred to as, you know, an adult road movie or, you know, closer to, in tone to something like a western, that kind of thing. Indeed, there are western references to Shane all the way throughout it, um, and so my interest was kind of piqued, um, and I'm so glad. I went to see it because I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I feel like this is the first time one of these comic book adaptations has been 
designed to appeal to me as opposed to a broader sort of family audience right but by jove what a, what a, what a price to pay um, I mean I don't know how before we speak about the content in general what was your what's your feeling on it I thoroughly enjoyed it um, it is I mean if you look at something like say Watchmen there's certainly more adult themes than that and uh-huh. I actually had a rating that was more yeah. appropriate to it yeah. also. and although weirdly I don't know why um, Watchmen had, had the same ratings or was an 18 I can't remember I want to say it was an 18 because but there's the blue wang yeah and there's um, there's mentions of rape and stuff in it, but I don't really see why that was more worthy of a higher certificate than Logan but no. that's a yeah we'll come to that we'll come to that yes um, yes I enjoyed it a lot I mean, and not because the, the violence or the, the way the violence is depicted but this is one of very few comic book films that feel like a grown up comic book film yeah. and not and not just because of the violence or language or anything like that because just the themes it explores and the way it explores them too it's just okay, I mean it's not Citizen Kane right but the the exploration of mortality and purpose and that sort of thing and um, ageing in this world where people are superheroes and nobody ever really dies and they never commit to any death because yeah remember um, X-Men 3 I know you say maybe best I've forgotten unfortunately my mind doesn't work that way yeah and um, well, X-Men 3 killed Professor X but couldn't even commit to that because they brought back at the end of the end credits really really yeah um, and that's one thing why I, I've just never been interested in the comic books, like the written ones. Um, and yes, I know the commercial pressures, but it's like, yeah. it's like oh, Superman's dead for the 800th time, okay, yeah. why, why would you care? At a, certain, at a certain point, there are no, the, the stakes don't really yeah. feel like so, the stakes. This is, this is the first time that I've watched one of these movies and it feels like there are, there are real stakes yeah. to be had. Yeah, um, so I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and yes, for the genre. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, comic book is it's a comic book is more of a medium than a genre because you can put loads of different genres in it. But within this fairly broad sweep of comic book films, then it is easily one of the most mature, most thoughtful, um, and most rewarding that I've seen. I got a great deal. Yeah. I mean, there's certain elements of it that troubled me. Um, let's talk, let's talk about the violence for a bit. Um, because for once I feel I almost feel like this is a movie where the talk of violence is being underplayed somewhat and I'm yeah. a little bit baffled by it because they say it is brutal it is frenzied and it is often sustained and we've seen we've seen levels of violence like this in films with this rating before and it's always been granted by the BBFC on grounds of like historical violence and whatnot right and yes. in this case in this case the reasoning is fantasy violence although when that fantasy involves basically knives that come out of people's hands that's not too far removed that's from knives that people hold in their yeah, hands yeah that's basically right? just knives that's basically just knives right but also the other bit we discussed and when it came out one of the first things I said to you that I thought was problematic about it yeah. was that you have a character who's a ten year old girl who is committing a great deal of these acts of knife based bladed weapon uh, based violence and I'm not just talking stabbing people I'm talking stabbing people through the head repeatedly friendly stabbing people in the throat and the face and stuff um, decapitating people yeah. um, and also violence of that sort of magnitude is being committed against her um, but because a couple of the people involved in this have regenerative powers 
Apparently this is only a 15 then because that's fantasy violence. Across magic. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's a contentious. You have, you have people... Um, I mean, I know of this thing. You don't see her, um, the main character, the girl at yeah. Wolverine's... You don't see her get hurt so much. You know, I really think they, they could very, see people shooting. If and when, like, it's very brief. Uh-huh. But um, I, it's implied. It's seen, but it's also more more often it's implied that, you know, that there's a scene where the other Wolverine we won't say much about is on top of her, stabbing the shit out of her. Right? You know, other other times, I believe she gets shot at some point as well, as you say. There's another child in this who gets shot, not faithfully, man, but it's yeah. still a child getting so shot. So what you've got is people clearly trying to do serious harm. Some trying to murder children. Two children. Um, and then children, and I mean, children, there's a couple of uh, children in their group um, who are older, and maybe 15 or 16 sort of age, I would guess that. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, then yes, you have this. It's you have this horrific violence being perpetrated by children. It's like, oh, she's a mutant, but yeah, she's basically just holding yeah. knives. Big bits of yeah. stabbing metal and chopping people's heads off, as you say, and you just repeatedly hurt them. And then that's not to mention the straight up, quite fully non-fancy stuff of real people being shot in the real heads with real shotguns. It's basically how it yeah. works. Yes, and there are and fifteen. Again, yeah, so you've got, you know, a kid who's tearing people up with knives, like, brutally and graphically. You've got Hugh Jackman doing the same. And in the course of this movie, Hugh Jackman um, knives uh, at least about, like, sort of graphically and clearly about seven or eight people. And head plus numerous others implied, right? Um, the girl decapitates one guy off screen, but she does then appear holding his head and throws his head on the ground. One other person is decapitated, clearly, by an adult. Um, there are at least two graphic depictions of gunshot wounds to heads in this film as well, right? And everything else on top, like multiple people getting shot, multiple other people just being torn up by people with knives, right? Um, and to its credit, I think the film handles it very, very well and its depiction of the violent stuff is probably appropriate to how it should be. But it's yes, because on most occasions it's, it's it's brief, it's it's not lingered on, but it almost makes it more impactful. And if anything, I think it's more disturbing that way. I think so too, and also because in the other one It doesn't like, feel like comic book violence. You can maybe see some blood and stuff, but when you have Wolverine with these what, eight inch long, incredibly sharp metal blades that appear in the skin. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he clearly kills someone, but it's like, almost like there's no consequence, he may as well just mock them on the head with a baseball bat or something. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. all the impact it seems to have. Yeah. This is, you know what happened when you basically have three short swords <laughs> cut through someone's arm? You know, at the same time, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> But I do think, to my credit, I mean, I absolutely love this stuff. I just, I just question the sensibility of how it's been rated. But I understand the arguments for, and I don't. I'm, we probably shouldn't talk about this for the whole, you know, bloody evening or anything. But in that screen we were in, there were uh, at least a couple of sort of parents taking in kids who weren't clear, clearly weren't 15 and who'd had to get their mum to take them yeah. to this to this film. And, and let's point out too that, that in this country that's illegal because yeah, exactly. 15 means 15 15 legal. means 15 you're not allowed to, not even with 
super, supervision from a guardian. Yeah, and the United yeah. States list, it's worse me I mentioned this to you yeah. last night. The army, that just means you have to yeah. have someone over 70 with you. Yeah, so you conceivably, a four-year-old could go to that and you would hope not, but mm-hmm. conceivably. Yeah. Uh, so that's, it just worries me ratings like that. These, these, parents, these parents came out last night and I can't help but a couple of them, because they must have gone thinking, well, it won't be that bad. I've seen these movies before. Um, there's probably a couple of sweary words and a bit more violence in this one. And I think at least a couple of those parents must have come back out thinking, man alive, I have made a mistake tonight. And probably, hopefully, have learned hope from so. it. And I hope, I hope it is because, you know, um, oh goodness gracious me, there was a booby and not um, <laughs> that man got knifed <laughs> in the head. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> there are boobies as well. Um, There's boobies and swearing. I don't mind seeing people get knifed in the head. Because right. It's made Jim Boggy and Buddy Mouth. Oh, oh, oh dear. Um, well, that's always the way it's seen. When the BBFC are bad for that, but certainly not as bad as the MPAA. Yeah. I'm bang on about it because it's such a bugbear of mine, though. It's like, that sex and swearing are bad and violence is okay. It's like, that's completely arse over about how that should be. Mm. You've got that so wrong. Yeah. But, um, yes. Um, this, this is a, a question for the ages rather than this film in particular. But. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe it's just that we're trusty old men now, Drew. We're pushing 38, for goodness sake. Do you know what I mean? I remember when all this was fields. Um, but suffice it, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, Logan, and I spent a good deal of time today thinking about it, and I probably should have been working. And uh, I think this is, by quite some margin, my favourite of the X-Men movies, certainly, um, and probably of the comic book adaptations in general that I've certainly been party to. So I look forward to watching it again. Yep. Yeah. I'll well, kind of point out as well that you expected, given some of the themes of the movie, Drew, and my prior form, um, and this is the one weakness, the one complaint I had about the film, I think you and I were both expecting me to be a wreck by the end of that <laughs> film, uh, and I wasn't, and I actually, the ending of it wasn't quite as impactful as I felt, the performances around that part, without saying too much, uh, you can probably guess uh, the, most of it, but um, didn't hit me quite as much as I thought they should have done. But it's a it's a fairly small. It's complaint. more there is of the characters involved at the end. One character, it didn't feel true. True. Yeah, it didn't mm-hmm. feel believable that this one character we have is. The other one, though, yes, maybe not so much the particular scene where the film ends, mm-hmm. but the, um, the real um, denouement. But. Um, in the rest, because of the rest of it, of of uh, not you would think of all the people that were left to look after this person, be friendly to this person, it would be Wolverine. Mm. Um, in terms of looking after Professor X and this old man who's a danger and is wanted, um, and you went from lost Wolverine, so Wolverine's clearly matured, and then so you buy his emotional journey because because it is in all the other films, one character seems to have changed at all, really. Nobody ever, yeah, never changed. Uh, well, once you add in the maybe the first class timeline that you see that Professor X started up pretty arrogant and changed, yeah, Magneto. Ne- Never so much, but Wolverine was one character who just hated well, it. Everything's been invested in this character because the studio cottoned on pretty quickly to the fact that he was the big show. Yeah, the fans of the comic books, anyway, he was the one that people were excited yeah, about seeing most of all in the movie. And Hugh Jackman has done a bang up job within the, the limitations that he's been cons- constrained by. And this is the first film, unfortunately, where obviously he's been um, properly um, 
unleashed. But it's, you know, he's the only one who's had any spin-off movies, right? Uh, that in itself says something. But what was your point? What were you saying before I really interrupted? <laughs> I, was I was heading that, somewhere yes, with that. That, um, that for one character, uh, I didn't really buy the emotion that I got. Yeah. That scene yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of dropped in there. See, I didn't really buy it for, for either of them. Because that one character you're talking about, I thought it was like emotionally turned on a dime right at that very end but and I didn't I didn't really buy that either but yeah of the two that was the more yeah, but I'm it wasn't so much that end bit but yeah. the emotional climax yeah. this, this bit with clearly I'm talking about it but yeah. it's more just it was from the rest of it that that's he had changed he sort of found realised the value of family and friends and stuff because, which is really just how the film began with yeah. um, but him he took his looking time after about it, this guy but <laughs> yeah. um, so I buy that he has some sort of emotional climax, which the other bit of the film, yeah. you know, just written in, you know, rather than earned. Um, but other than that, yeah, thoroughly enjoyable yeah. film. I'd watch it again. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know what this says about me, but with the ridiculously brutal stuff, most of that had me giggling. <laughs> just, um, oh, I was super impressed by it. I think it handled it in exactly the right way. Uh, it's, the, the, it's like an incredibly brutal attack on knives to someone's head. It's like, yeah. You know, some people go, That opened uh, open in five minutes, right? It was like, right, okay, this film set is still out pretty, pretty early. I wasn't expecting that level to be sustained. Yeah. Right. Um, and I still think that some of that is just funny because it's just it's so brutal. Um, not in a kind of hysterical funny way, so it's amusing me a bit. Um, well, the only thing missing were like captions appearing over people's heads saying <laughs> things like "gark" or stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? With seven exclamation marks. Yeah, um, thoroughly enjoyable. It's not really a lot negative I have to say about it. No, um, I felt it was a little long. A couple of the emotional beats I felt didn't ring true. That dinner table, family dinner table scene as well. There was a part of that that felt a little bit forced for me. But overall, pretty solid stuff. Pretty solid stuff. Yeah, but even in that moment too, there's some of. Um, there are because it's calls back to other stuff and like when you see because you know that um, Professor Xavier is not the person he was and, yeah but there's like there's a wee bit there's a wee bit of irony and a bit of humour and things he seemed to roll for and you can see just catching them mm. and it's like yeah because there is a relationship there and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's a shared history and you know they don't always get on but they do care of each other and some of those emotional beats really worked it's, it's more the stuff that outside of them they felt a bit forced with those two I yeah. felt that, that worked yeah that does work. they do have a relationship and it's been yeah. a long time it's like step toeing son <laughs> do you know what I mean um, but there we go so I think it's safe to say we both thoroughly enjoyed that um, well while this beguiling atmosphere at the Royal Oak in Kerouis um, interferes with uh, <laughs> interferes with proceedings Shall we afford Scott the opportunity to talk about... What film was he going to talk about? Certain Women? Certain Women. Yes, Certain Women. So. Uh, and we'll also leave him to introduce another movie, which was... The Founder. The Founder. Uh, we're going to go and refill our glasses, I think, and we'll be back with you in a bit. 
It was a clever move to minimise the name McDonald's on the promo material for the founder, encumbered as it is with its own baggage and prejudice, but for a little while longer at least, it is within living memory that the burger behemoth was not the globe-bestriding exemplar of all that is good and bad about neoliberal capitalism, but a simple burger stand out California way, ran by Dick and Mac McDonald, played here by Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch respectively. I say simple, as that's how it seems from our decadent modernity, but back in the 50s, the tradition of the great American dynasty was not really all that great, as hard-grafting travelling salesman Ray Kroc, played by Michael Keaton, knew from bitter first-hand experience. The car hops were overworked, the food wasn't well prepared, uh, assuming you were lucky enough to get what you ordered. So, while on the road hawking a more efficient milkshake machine, he's stunned to come across the diner model that the McDonald's have innovated. It's largely as McDonald's is these days, although even more streamlined, offering only a very few items which can then be made to a consistent standard and quality, as opposed to diners that offered a wide selection of badly done food. Greatly impressed, he buttonholes the McDonald's in order to get their story, and then insists on shoehorning himself into their operations in order to franchise their idea across the USA. They'd tried that idea before with suboptimal results, as it became impossible to maintain standards, and the stress of attempting to do this put Mac into the hospital. Ray swears things will be different this time, which is, I suppose, the one thing he says that's truthful. We follow Ray in his attempts to pitch an initially unreceptive world about this idea before finding a few people willing to sign up, one of whom being Patrick Wilson's Roly Smith, although it's his wife Joan, played by Linda Cardellini, that Ray's more interested in. This will eventually become a problem for Ray's long-ignored wife, played by Laura Dern. As the idea catches on, more and more franchisees sign up with Ray, and he starts to want far more influence and control than the Ironcad contract with the McDonald's allows. And soon he starts butting heads with them, and making more money by some side deals relating to the property that restaurants are built on that are against the spirit, if not the letter, of the deal. Things eventually come to a head, as Ray pushes ever more strongly against the McDonald's control before outright defying them. Secure in the knowledge that having made far more money off the McDonald's idea than they themselves have, any possible lawsuit for breach of contract could be lawyered out until the McDonald's run out of money. So, reluctantly, the McDonald's give up their idea, and their name, for a mere fraction of what it's worth to what's become a greedy, unscrupulous, uncaring corporate monolith. Which is largely infuriating, because initially, Ray doesn't seem all that bad. Now, that's not to minimise Ray's exceedingly distant relationship with his wife, which is a pretty shabby byproduct of his line of work, but not actively hateful. But the story of the founder, despite how intertwined it necessarily is with the McDonald's brothers, in truth has very little to do with him, and almost everything to do with the slide of Ray Kroc from somewhat hapless, hard-working, almost stereotypical salesman to the embodiment of the overreaching corporate mentality that is either everything that is great or is fundamentally broken about neoliberal capitalism, depending on where you fall in the Lenin to Ayn Rand spectrum. Which is a very interesting framing device, but it's Michael Keaton who knocks us out of the park, with a tremendous performance that does a bang-up job of capturing Ray's attitudes as he goes from underdog to overdog. Offerman and Carol Lynch play well their roles that this dramatisation requires, both being so, well, nice, that when Ray starts hard-charging them it seems like he's kicking puppies. How realistic are these portrayals? I can't really say, but I'd be willing to bet not hugely, and there's most likely a great deal more complexity in the dealings between the parties than is represented here, and there are some good reasons for Croc to feel aggrieved over his treatment that aren't explored quite as fully as it should be if this was aiming to be fair and balanced, but I'm not really looking for a legal briefing, and, as a drama, it all works very well indeed. Even if you don't care a whit for the wrangling of the rights to McDonald's, this is worth watching purely on the basis of Keaton's performance. It's one of the rare films that left me infuriated enough that I very much wished to reach through the screen and throttle the lead character. And, well, that's got to count for something, I suppose. Well worth seeking out and adding to your diet. 
Right, Drew, that is what Scott thought of the founder, but what say ye, sir? Well, um, well, the Magic Red Ring, well, uh, you know what Scott thought, the Magic Red Ring is not currently available to me, but I suspect I'm largely on board with Scott. Um, yes, with all of these um, based on the true story things, that's for given degrees of true, but generally, yes, there's a restaurant chain called McDonald's, and that's all you can probably be certain about, uh, to be accurate. Um, but... Uh, it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, I didn't. Well, I had any reason to care, but there's nothing. There's never. I had much. I never had much knowledge of the history of McDonald's before, because it wasn't important. Um, and it's quite interesting, actually, um, just to see how this was a worldwide phenomenon now began as one restaurant in Southern California, and then you have this. Now, I mean, you don't know how close to the deal person is, and the fact that um, I like Michael Keaton. Um, certainly, in, in more recent years, I've become a much greater uh, admirer of his. Uh, I never really liked him as Batman. I never liked him as Batman films, but recent years with Spotlight and Birdman and stuff, I like Michael Keaton. He's very, very engaging in this. Um, and I also acting is one of those things where you generally do get better with age. Um, so maybe it's just that. Yes, Michael Keith is a watchable, a uh, very engaging watch in this. And it's an interesting story. You have this guy who's down in his luck. He's going to... Well, he's not bad as a series. He's got a decent house and stuff. But, you know, he's always in the verity. Who one bad investment could just lose it for him. Uh, and when he sees promise in this thing. And, and he kind of gets swept up by his excitement about what he could do with this. And sees how different they are to the other so-called fast food joints of the time and that's it's awesome you're almost rooting for him early on it's like oh yeah that's, I can see why you'd be excited about that you want to make a success and then, but then he just gradually he becomes an arsehole basically uh, <laughs> you know, he, he gradually, a family show Drew a family show he gradually becomes an idiot I had a Joe's family friendly version of that. But, it's um, alright, I'll record I'll record an instance of A-Hall in like TV dubbing style later in silence and we'll, we'll edit it in. Now all I can think about is meeting a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, so yes, he becomes a jackass basically and he starts... Because there's not any suggestion early on that he's he just this guy's more just like kind of driven and uh, down his luck at the same time. And yeah, that's an appealing story. And not in how he becomes it's still an appealing story, but he becomes a less of an appealing character. Yeah. And just when he starts to gradually take over McDonald's and to make it his, and then to take all the credit for it, where the people that actually started it who formed the basis of this quick of uh, the speedy service system. And he just, as the story film goes on, you begin to hate Michael Keaton more and more. And uh, uh, I suspect Scott may well have mentioned this, but the way he put it to me when we talked about it a few weeks ago was um, by the end of the film, he basically wanted to reach on the screen and punch him in the face. Um, and my feelings weren't quite strong as that, but he does um, do a very good job of the only turning how you feel about this guy. You start rooting for him, he's a little guy, you know, he's the underdog, and he's 
kind of down in his luck and he sees this opportunity and thinks, oh, they're going to work together. And then by the end, he's built this massive corporate empire off of someone else's work and stolen out of London. Um, so it comes on with a pantomime villain by the end, so it's like, oh, boo, it's... Um, all that, yeah, it's... Michael Keaton's fair uh, Really entertaining, pretty interesting story. For given values of true, as always, there's always a revisor, but... I mean, it probably doesn't matter that much. It's um, not set out to be a documentary, and if I just an engaging story about one of the world's most recognisable brands. And the only, the only complaint I have with it, really, is just that there's not enough Nick Offerman, because there's no such thing as enough <laughs> Nick Offerman. Uh, when I, I'm, I'm a recent convert to Nick Offerman, I only started watching Parks and Recreation a couple of months ago, and I have now watched every episode of it. And Ron Swanson is a god, so uh, I'll take what Nick Offerman I can get. Uh, of course, it's not enough, but yeah, it's, um, it's certainly absolutely not the sort of film you would get any benefit from seeing in a cinema. It's an absolutely perfect film to catch up on Netflix or what that ends up being on Amazon Video or that you can. It will have you sort of screaming at the screen at some point to think, uh, quite entertaining ride, interesting story, good performances, yeah. Nice. Good stuff. Nice. Um, since it's available now on catch up and it didn't feel pertinent to talk about it, um, betwixt uh, the cinema release and now, uh, probably speak briefly about uh, Arrival. Yes. Yes. Arrival. I'm sorry, I saw the roots from the name there, uh, which we watched just a couple of nights ago actually. Uh, I had seen it previously, that was the first time you had seen it. Yeah. So Amy and... I missed it in the cinema, I was looking forward to yeah. it. Like, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, obviously off the back of Prisoners I wasn't massively, massively in love with, but it was certainly very accomplished. Um, but Sicario was a real piece of work from Sicario. director Denny Villeneuve. Prisoners is a pretty decent film, yeah. it goes on half an hour too long. I yeah. Against the lost my... Um, I would just say that lost my my interest not so much. Um, but yes, the longer it went on, the less well I regarded it. Yeah, yeah. But Sicario, yeah, Sicario, really good filler. Yeah. Tightly paced, tightly scripted. Um, so yeah. And Enemy as well, which I watched and at first thought I disliked, and since then I've find myself thinking about it a great deal and I'm going to have to revisit actually I feel like I might have missed something there but I, I really did quite dislike it but something about it stuck with me so I will go back and, and watch yeah, I've it again I've not seen that but, um... but I feel like I've got a bit of skin in the Denny Villeneuve game because obviously he's directed Blade Runner 24 yes. Nine, right? Um, yes I have massive massive caveats about that film mm-hmm. but with what I've seen Denny Villeneuve so far then I'm going to give it a go yeah um, that and so, like, oh, he's not Ridley Scott and I'm really happy Ridley Scott's not involved with Blade Runner given the cluster yeah. um, mess that yes. Prometheus was but. so I'm using I'm, I'm using Arrival as a bit of a barometer really um, as to whether or not I should get my hopes up about uh, Blade Runner 2049 and for the most part I have to say yes I probably will I think uh, Villeneuve is quickly establishing himself as the sort of the thinking man's action director, not necessarily action director, sorry, um, the thinking man's, who's his closest parallel? I don't know, I'm thinking maybe Paul Verhoeven. Really? 
really? Something like that? Maybe, but it's not. It's a wee bit more intellectual than that. But still, you look know, if you like dig down things at Robocop and Coca Recall is more there. Yeah. But maybe. I don't know. I'm just still thinking the same genre, but. If you look at something like Moon and Source Code, I think Duncan Jones has different parallels with them. Yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call. And they're both fairly on board working style, so maybe He certainly seems very flexible and more than dependable. And having watched Arrival now, I'm surprised at how well it did at the box office. Because it doesn't necessarily strike me as a type of film that would have drawn because it is primarily an intellectual Hard sci-fi. Yeah. For the most part, it's hard sci-fi. So you have Amy Adams, who's a linguist, who's a theoretical uh, physicist, and they are enlisted by the US government to help when 12 alien spacecraft um, just appear on Earth one day, situating themselves at 12 seemingly random locations around the globe, one of which is in the States. Uh, say Adam's character and Renner's character are enlisted to try and make contact um, with the aliens, who they soon nickname Abbott and Costello, there are two of them, who we meet, and try and uh, decode the alien language and allow communication. Uh, and the majority of the film deals with those efforts, and for the most part, very little happens, uh, it must be said. It's mostly people sitting in rooms or standing in a spaceship trying yeah, to communicate to aliens with iPads. In terms of action, yes, yes. Um, this, is, this is not um, aliens or yeah. anything like that. There's, actually, there's a lot of parallels between this and Contact, seems probably the most obvious yes, example um, of a more intellectual piece of sci fi um, that doesn't really observe rules around set pieces and uh, action yeah. uh, it's very much very much at the equations and sitting around the pondering things end of the spectrum right um, but I for one thought I've been a little bit perplexed perhaps around the disappointment people have had or, or certainly the outpouring of disappointment for people that Amy Adams wasn't necessarily Oscar nominated for a performance because I didn't necessarily think it was the best Amy Adams performance that I've seen, let alone uh, 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 an Oscar-worthy performance. But she is very, very good, as she routinely is. Yes, and I, I, I don't even, I don't think, compared to something like... It's not a showy performance. No, but I mean, even if it's not just things like Big Eyes, um, where she's much more stretched than Big Eyes, it's a bigger range for her to work with. That uh, yes, there's... It's quite a... I was going to say measured performance, I don't think that's quite right. No. Subdued isn't quite right either, but it is quite quiet. There's no, yeah, yeah, no yeah. Many, not many extremes. Yeah, by virtue, of the, that, by virtue of the character. Yeah, because yeah, anything more would be inappropriate. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But yes, it's certainly very assured. Yeah. Um, and it's what the film needs. But yes, I don't it really needs awards for that because if there are awards for that film, it's not going to be for the actor, I think. No, no. Um, so it's very much a thinking piece anyway. Um, and as we gradually uh, learn more about why the aliens have uh, come to our planet and also the effect, without giving anything away, that their language. Uh, could potentially have on the future of mankind. Um, yeah, not a, not a great deal happens, and so it's not necessarily the sort of big crowd-pleasing sci-fi movie um, that you would expect. So hence why I'm quite surprised that it did as well as it did in the box office. But I'm also 
massively glad that it did because yeah. once again it proves that if you treat audiences with a bit of respect um, there's that, that cliche to interrupt you no, no, no. there's that cliche about you know no one ever uh, it's a PT Barnum said I'm probably going to mangle that said, no one ever went broke underestimating the American public and this yeah. extent to the rest of the world so it's not yeah. quite relative well, but no but, not uh, like any other American cousins but, just, but uh, it's just that you know um, you see a fairly sort of dumb sci-fi explosions and stuff. I guess those can be entertaining. Um, I love about aliens again. Yes, aliens is my action movie in space. Yeah. But I love aliens. Yeah. Um, but I want I want the more thoughtful stuff as well. And it doesn't come along anything like as much. And clearly the thinking is people don't want to see that. How do you know you never make the other stuff? Right? Um, where's my I I really, really don't like the film. Yeah. But you know, let's talk the sci-fi. Two thousand one for a sci-fi film was massively successful for the yeah. time for film like Star Wars. Yeah. Stuff. And yeah, so there's clearly some market. This is pure cool, film. And yeah, again, go back to Duncan Jones, Moon in particular. Yes, it's more cult. There was clearly a market for that, though. And so I've completely forgot the point I'm making. But uh, yeah, so like yeah, the, yeah, we've seen about the audience and respecting the audience. They, they will come. So we're not just saying they have things. Like people want to be challenged. Yes, and the big example being Inception, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so and that yeah, that's massive budget, massive box office, and it yeah. It's um, and yeah, I'm sure it was helped by Christopher Nolan's name, but I still think. Christopher Nolan's name nothing as big as the Batman name so I don't yeah. really know that so much but yeah just it's like there is clearly a market out there and for the, the, the idea that oh, people won't come to it because you've just never tried mm-hmm. do it more please um, yeah. get some more actual hard sci-fi out there yes and for a movie as well for a movie in which very little happens and of a certain length as well I certainly didn't I didn't feel even on second watching I didn't really feel that Arrival dragged at all um, it's not a film that I've taken to heart quite as much as I did Contact. Contact is still one of those movies that I could watch anytime, any place, just press play and I'm there. I've got a real fondness for Contact. But the reason, um, I mean, I, I enjoyed Arrival greatly, it's not without its flaws, but the reason that it gives me uh, hope for Blade Runner uh, 2049 is that what um, Villeneuve has done is demonstrate that he can handle uh, a very fundamental, um, very, but also at the same time abstract concept, such as the effect of language, um, you know, in the same way that the Blade Runner obviously deals with pretty fundamental but abstract concepts of, you know, what what actually differentiates us, what makes us human. Yes. Right. Okay. Nature existence. Yeah. But necessarily quite quite abstract, probably for a general audience, and he's shown that he can uh, handle that within the framework of a large budget sci-fi movie. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed, and I've got a great deal of hope. Not least of all because my main man Ryan Gosling is <laughs> is the is the lead in 2049, but that Denny Villeneuve is um, clearly very very capable director who has now demonstrated pretty solid mastery of his class in several genres um, a fairly broad spectrum he's proven himself a capable pair of hands and 
I mean, given given Ridley Scott's form of late, then I'm certainly more hopeful about it being in Neil's yes. hands than his. Yes, especially having seen um, early Covenant trailers or Prometheus. Yes, before Logan. Yeah. Prometheus Redux, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, can I just pop back? I meant to mention this when talking to Logan, now you've mentioned that. Then, that, apart from it being totally, woefully misjudged, this nonsense of having a trailer inside the actual film, uh, that can sort off right now. Let's yeah. not let that be a trend, please. Yeah. A Deadpool trailer actually inside the start of the film. But back to arrival, Drew. <laughs> no, just allow me to rant. That can sort right off. No, please carry on. You realise the background music means we can't <laughs> we can't edit this. Um. I know, wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> All, my no- all of my nonsense gets in this episode. Oh no, <laughs> he's realised. <laughs> I was hoping this moment, now I've got the hiccups, man. <laughs> and I can't edit those out either. Um, Arrival, really, really liked it. I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I really, really liked it. And undoubtedly I will come back to it again. Um, uh-huh. it's I must, not- sorry, I must stop nodding, Craig. Yes, you must. I did pretty well to suppress that hiccup there. But um, I believe now... Scott is going to ruminate a little on AIM. I almost made it without the hiccup. Scott is going to ruminate somewhat on certain women. Certain Women was pitched to me by the slick, silver-tongued salesman of the American Airlines in-flight entertainment system as the intersecting stories of three women blazing their own trail in small-town northwestern USA. This is what we used to call a lie, although I suppose it's just an alternative plot synopsis these days. To the best of my recollection, the three stands of the narrative do not come anywhere near to each other, which I believe makes them anti-secting stories. In our first stand, Laura Dern plays a lawyer, also named Laura, representing Jared Harris's Fuller, who's refusing to take her advice that there is no basis to sue for further workplace accident compensation after previously accepting a lowball offer. She has cause to wonder about institutional sexism when her second opinion from a male colleague is accepted without the months of questioning she received, but the kicker to all this comes when Fuller snaps and takes a security guard hostage at gunpoint in his former place of employment. Laura is called to act as a negotiator, the totality of which I assure you is a whole lot more low-key than a quick recap makes it sound. The second strand sees a young family, headed by Gina, Michelle Williams, and Ryan, James LaGrosse, attempt by a quantity of sandstone from Odoaf Deep Space Nine, Rene Auberginois, who appears to be on the cusp of some form of dementia. And that's literally all there is to that strand. The final story is often incorrectly stated as centering on Kirsten Stewart, although the real protagonist is the strangely unnamed on IMDb The Rancher, played by Lily Gladstone, who is, and stop me if this is a shock, a ranch hand, specifically a temporary winter one with no roots or friend in the microscopic town that she finds herself in. Lonely, she drifts into a late-night class being taught by Stuart's Elizabeth Travis, a lawyer from a town about a four-hour drive away who is very much having second thoughts about the whole teaching gig. Over the course of a few weeks of the post-class trip to the diner, the rancher tries to strike up at the very least a friendship with Elizabeth, who's clearly not that into her. Between these one-sided conversations, really more of a moaning session on Elizabeth's part, the rancher goes through the repetitive motions of looking after the horses. The closest this gets to drama is when Elizabeth quits the class and the rancher impulsively decides to drive to Elizabeth's town to track her down to say hello. Which she does. Then she goes back to the ranch. 
Now, writer-director Kelly Reichardt has some chops for her, to be sure. The characters are well-drawn and believable, and the isolation and distance of the characters and locations conveyed well by shots that aren't necessarily the most obvious to select. It's attracted a talented cast, whom I'm generally quite fond of, and also Kirsten Stewart's in it. But to be fair, even she's eminently believable in her role, and I can't find flaw with the cast as a whole, with Laura Dern giving a particularly strong turn. Furthermore, I'm sure there are people who either find themselves dealing with the isolation of small-town life, or who do not receive the professional or familial respect that they are clearly due, be they male or female, that will find something to connect with in certain women, although I'm not sure how much everyone else will get from it though. The pacing, as you've presumably already inferred from the recaps, is necessarily sedate. So sedate, in fact, that I fell asleep while watching it and had to rewind an hour of it, although that's perhaps more a reflection on the conditions of my watching it rather than the quality of the film. However, I do have a fairly high tolerance for the glacially paced, and this is close to my limits, so it may well prove too much, or rather too little, for general audiences. The Bechdel test remains disappointingly relevant, and while it's nice to see a film fly over that bar, I can't cut it any slack for, well, not really doing or saying very much. It's not that the observations it's making about the attitudes of men towards women aren't valid, but they're the same ones that have been obvious for decades at the very least, I suppose. Until that changes, it's important to keep bringing them to the fore, but I doubt that certain women is going to do much to change attitudes. It's really more of a choir-preaching exercise. I can see the reasons for this having been warmly critically received, but it's also quite clear to me why this is a limited release. A double bill of this, and nigh on any major studio or general audience film, would be quite the style clash. Still, this is a warning in search of a problem. It's the sort of film you're only likely to have heard about if your cinematic tastes skew in its direction, and if so, you'll probably like what it offers up. If, however, this is the first time you've heard of certain women, I'll lay decent odds on you best leaving it alone. So anyway, now that uh, now that Scott has uh, told us about certain women, uh, let me redress a wrong. Drew is super peeved at me <laughs> because I didn't let him have a say on Arrival. So Drew, what did you think of Arrival? Oh, um, it was always planned this way, structurally. <laughs> also, after um, a moment, or unfortunately several moments to recover, because apparently in the last couple of hours I reached the age of 90 and dislike, or felt like I almost dislocated my own shoulder, scratching my back. Cool. Because uh, I am old and broken. Yes, alright, so much to add to what you said, Craig. Um, but yes, just it's refreshing to see that sort of, it's not the hardest sci fi, but that sort of hard, fairly intellectual sci fi, lack of huge action set pieces. Uh, you mentioned contact, that's absolutely what I was thinking a lot when I thought that. Um, some similar events in it too, um, similar ideas too. Very different ending though. Um, I know the ending of Contact it feels like a cop-out to a lot of people. Mm. I st- I'm still not sure whether I think that or not. So many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, the ending of this film, I don't want to spoil it, um, the ending of this film is the only thing that really took the shine off this for me. I was enjoying it a lot. Uh, I like the concepts, the ideas, and the way it was approached. Um, and I like, you know... When the when stupid decisions were made, it was because of like idiot politicians and stuff. Like yeah, petty international posturing yeah. and yeah. But the, like the people actually on the ground were at least trying to try to resist it in a way. But not just like the Forrest Whitaker's character wasn't just being like the, the yes man for Washington. I'm not going to do this now or something. But it was like wasn't quite as black and white as that sort of character so often written. It's like, oh, it's the, um, the military person who's going to say, oh, shoot, everything now, because I've been told, you know. So that's, I like the characterisation. 
the, the only thing that for me took the shine off it was the end because it was for me getting dangerously close to old now magic um, because the um, and if it's for me skating dangerously close to interstellar territory right uh, and just the end of interstellar made me very very angry the first time I saw it it's it's going not exactly the same as Interstellar so I'm going to try to give anything away um, it's just that something happened in the film that somehow this thing can fundamentally change people and that just seemed like absolute nonsense to me it really took the edge off for me a bit um, but not again not in the way that Interstellar did which I so enjoyed for a great part um, so sorry, it's so hard to speak about this coherently without just saying what it is. Mm. to try and skirt around it very carefully. But overall? But, but overall, yes. Um, yes, the ending, I felt let down by Overall, it's intelligent, thoughtful, thought-provoking. Um, it's an interesting shot. It's shot so differently from mm. many, many science fiction films. And the score. Johan Johansson's score. Yeah. Love um, that score. It's weird. It's, it brought to mind, I think I said to you when I was watching, it brought to mind quite a lot of things. It's reminiscent of. It had a like, Johnny Greenwood, clearly there will be blood sort of. Yeah, yeah, declamatory, yeah. Um, Almost kind of discordant sort of yeah. stabs now and against them. Yeah, so. Tell what it reminded me of. It reminded me of the time I gave a cat LSD. <laughs> I don't really give a cat LSD, obviously. That's PCB. <laughs> should have seen things that a cat could lift. <laughs> um, yeah, um, the score here is fantastic. Um, and so elements, so there's a discordant Johnny Greenwood sort of sound. Then there are... Maybe we hints of like an alien-ish yeah. score. And also... Not, not quite, but... You know the uh, more, more sound design is sound track, but yeah. the, yep. the sort of sound you get in War of the Worlds. One of the few successful things in the War of the Worlds was the sort of horny, really eerie sound, and there was elements yeah. of that that brought back some other sci-fi. There's an unsettling here about the sound yeah. design. Yeah, um, and actually, yeah, it's a really good atmosphere just from the sound. But really, it's so important. Um, but it didn't feel like a place. Sometimes you'll find that. I thought we'll try to kind of force something on the soundtrack and it doesn't fit here it did yeah but at the same time it wasn't just it wasn't just being ominous it was kind of mysterious and otherworldly yeah but not necessarily threatening yeah unknown but yeah. it's not which fits in so well with the film so like yes the whole point being about are these aliens here to do us good or bad that's what we need to know and what nobody can agree on because different cultures have taken different approaches to finding it, which means they get different answers. Um, so that's really interesting. So maybe something I would like to see explored a bit more is the different approaches other people were taking and how that now that could make a two-hour film very easy. But how that um, how the approach people start off with can affect yeah. the scientific results you get back um, and how it can prejudice them. But yes, uh, photo was well acted. Um, and again, there's nobody. Yeah, Jeremy Renner's fine in it. Forrest Whitaker, very generally pretty defensible. Amy Adams is great. 
they're not like standout um, awards uh, worthy performances. It's films more about atmosphere and sort of calm intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the speed at which they uncover this alien language is unbelievable. As I said, we were watching the it took a thousand years for people to work out what Harry Glyphic spent. Smartest people on the planet, and they couldn't do it until they found the Rosetta Stone. I still can't understand people from Dundee. <laughs> yeah, but Craig, who can? Um, but yes, and that necessarily accelerated process. Um, it's, it's a bit thoughtful intellectual pursuit, and the, the way they were approaching it, had something more to do with actual science and scientific method than so much. I, I, it's the fact that yes, there's some intelligence in there and it treats its audience with intelligence and that alone is enough. That's rewarding in itself. And it's, I mean, it's quite clear that not everybody's going to enjoy. Um, and then not just for the lack of shooty shooty bang bang or anything, but um, some people will find it a little slow. And that's okay, but not every film has to be for everybody. But I think if you want something science fiction, but separate from so much of it, so much of like the action stuff that has predominated cinemas for so long, that it's really rewarding to watch. And definitely regret it seeing it. Agreed. And on that note, I guess we will leave you in peace until the next episode. Uh, I, for one, have currently got no <laughs> access to data on my mobile phone to check what anyone might or might not have been saying on Twitter. So if we've had uh, any comments from you guys in the interim, I promise we'll get back to them in the next episode, but bear yes. with us for now. When, when we're out of the Faraday cage, the pub. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. I was Craig, Drew was Drew. Fairly well. And Scott was Scott.